Today is Wednesday, February the 22nd, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Your Gmail is permanently changing soon. And here's what to expect. Gmail is getting a facelift. Your Gmail account will soon look a little bit different as a company finally rolls out a long-expected makeover to all users. In a bid to offer users a more complete Google Workspace experience, the updated Gmail will now provide not just email services, but video conferencing and chat options all in a single location. Users won't have to do anything to activate the new look Gmail, which will be updated by default over the next few days to users across the world in a bid to help modernize the platform. In a Google Workspace update post, the company has confirmed that the new look will become the standard experience for Gmail with no option to revert to the original user interface. News of the facelift was first announced in February of last year as part of a move to bring other Google Workspace services such as Chat and Meet closer to Gmail. Most Gmail users were able to try out the new Look service in November of 2022, but retained the option to revert back to the original view at any time. This will no longer be possible. With users fixed to the new design, Although Google does note that users can change their Gmail theme, inbox type, and more through the quick settings menu. The change may seem quite drastic to some Gmail users who still see emails display in front and center, but shifted significantly over to the right-hand side of the display to make way for a new sidebar on the left side that contains quick links to chat, space, and meet, shifting your email folders and label options over slightly away from the more integrated links with Meet and Chat, users will also see a new right sidebar which has shortcuts to other Google services like Calendar, Task, and Keep without having to open up extra tabs or windows. The company adds that you will also see all your notifications in one place with bubbles flagging when you have a new message or chat to engage with. It will be available to all Google Workspace user accounts, as well as G Suite Basic and business customers. The U.S. Supreme Court takes up Section 230, which could reshape the Internet. YouTube's system for recommending content to users, which the company began building in 2008, relies on a highly complex algorithm to predict what videos will interest viewers and keep them watching. YouTube's recommendations algorithm and those used by platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter are now at the heart of legal dispute that will go before the Supreme Court in a case that involves a powerful legal shield 
that helped the Internet grow. We're talking about rewriting the legal rules that govern the fundamental architecture of the Internet. Aaron Mackey, senior staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, said, What's at stake in the case known as Google versus Gonzalez, which is a case where it is the backbone of an online activity. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act immunizes Internet companies from liability over content posted by third parties and allows platforms to remove content considered obscene or objectionable. The dispute before the Supreme Court marks the first time the court will consider the scope of the law, and the question before the justices is whether Section 230's protections for platforms extend to targeted recommendations of information. The court fight arose after terrorist attacks in Paris in November of 2015, when 129 people were murdered by ISIS members. Among the victims was 23-year-old Nohemi Gonzalez, an American college student studying abroad, who was killed at a bistro in the city. Gonzalez's parents and other family members filed a civil lawsuit in 2016 against Google, which owns YouTube, alleging that the tech company aided and abetted ISIS in violation of a federal anti-terrorism statute by recommending videos posted by the terror group to users. Google moved to dismiss the complaint, claiming that they were immune from the claims under Section 230. A federal district court in California agreed, and regarding YouTube's recommendations, found that Google was protected under the law because the videos at issue were produced by ISIS. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirmed the district court's ruling, and Gonzalez's family asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. The high court said in October it would take up the dispute. The court fight has elicited input from a range of parties, many of which are backing Google in the case. Platforms like Twitter, Meta, and Reddit, all of which rely on Section 230 and its protections, argue algorithmic recommendations allow them to organize the millions of pieces of third-party content that appear on their sites, enhancing the experience for users who would otherwise be forced to sift through a mammoth amount of posts, articles, photos, and videos. Given the sheer volume of content on the Internet, efforts to organize rank and display content in ways that are useful and attractive to users are indispensable, lawyers for Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, told the court. Even the company that operates online dating services, Match and Tinder, pointed to Section 230 as vital to its efforts to connect singles, as a law allows its dating platforms to provide recommendations to its users for potential matches without having to fear overwhelming litigation. But conservatives are using the case as a vehicle to rail against big tech firms and amplify claims that platforms censor content based on political ideology. Citing lower court decisions, they believe has led to a broad grant of immunity. A group of Republican senators and House members told the Supreme Court that platforms have not been shy about restricting access and removing content based on the politics of the speaker, an issue that has persistently arisen as big tech companies censor and remove content espousing conservative political views, despite the lack of immunity for such actions in the text of 
Section 230. The case has presented the justices with a rare opportunity to hear directly from the co-authors of the legislation at issue. Ron Wyden, now a Democratic senator from Oregon, and Chris Cox, a former GOP congressman from California, crafted Section 230 in the House in 1996. The bipartisan pair filed a friend-of-the-court brief explaining the plain meaning of their law and the policy balance they sought to strike. Section 230 protects targeted recommendations to the same extent it protects other forms of content curation and presentation, they wrote. Any other interpretation would subvert Section 230's purpose of encouraging innovation in content moderation and presentation. The real-time transmission of user-generated content that Section 230 fosters has become a backbone of online activity relied upon by innumerable Internet users and platforms alike. Google, they argued, is entitled to liability protection under Section 230 since the platform's recommendation algorithm is merely responding to user preferences by pairing them with the types of content they seek. The algorithm functions in a way that is not meaningfully different from the many Torio decisions that platforms have always made in deciding how to present third-party content, Wyden and Cox said. The battle also highlights competing views about the Internet today and how Section 230 has reshaped it. For tech companies, the law has laid the groundwork for new platforms to come online, an industry of online creators to form and free expression to flourish. For Gonzalez family and others, the algorithmic recommendations have proven deadly and harmful. Like the Gonzalez, Taiwana Anderson too has fought to hold a social media platform responsible over content it recommends to users. Last May, Anderson sued TikTok and its parent company, China-based ByteDance, after her 10-year-old daughter, Naila, died in late 2021 after trying to perform the dangerous blackout challenge in which users are pushed to strangle themselves until they pass out and then share videos of the experience. The challenge, which went viral on TikTok, was recommended by Nala through her account for you page, a curated feed of third-party content powered by TikTok's algorithmic recommendation system. Anderson's lawsuit sought to hold TikTok accountable for deliberately funneling dangerous content to minors through the challenges and encouraging behavior that put their lives in danger. TikTok asked the federal district court in Pennsylvania to dismiss the suit, invoking Section 230. U.S. District Judge Paul Diamond tossed out the case in October, writing that the law shielded TikTok from liability because it was promoting the work of others. But he acknowledged in a brief order that TikTok made the blackout challenge readily available on this site and said its algorithm was a way to bring the challenge to the attention of those likely to be most interested in it. The wisdom of conferring such immunity is something properly taken up with Congress, not the courts, Diamond wrote. Mackey of Electronic Frontier Foundation noted that if people disagree with the reach of Section 230 as the courts have interpreted it, the right remedy is for Congress, not the Supreme Court, to rewrite the law. When they pass it, they set this balance and said not that they didn't believe there wouldn't be harmful content, but they believe on balance the creation of opportunities and forums 
for people to speak, for the growth of the internet and development of a tool that became central to our lives, commerce, political expression, that was what they valued more. Mackey said, Congress is free to rewrite that balance. In the 27 years since Section 230 became law, the explosive growth of the internet has fueled a multi-billion dollar industry of independent online creators who rely on large tech platforms to reach new audiences and monetize their content. Internet companies and supporters of Section 230 note the law has allowed for new and emerging companies to grow into industry leaders without incurring significant litigation costs fighting frivolous claims. The Supreme Court has given little indication how it may approach Section 230. Only Justice Clarence Thomas has written about lower courts' interpretation of the legal shield. Courts have long emphasized non-textual arguments when interpreting Section 230 leaving questionable precedent in their wake. Thomas wrote in a 2020 statement urging the court to consider whether the law's text aligns with the current state of immunity enjoyed by Internet platforms. The Supreme Court could issue a ruling that affirms how Section 230 has been interpreted by lower courts or narrow the law's immunity. But Internet companies warned the court that if it limits the scope of Section 230, it could drastically change how they approach content posted to their sites, with a greater risk of costly litigation with fewer protections, companies may be more cautious about letting content appear on their sites that may be problematic and only allow content that has been vetted and poses little legal risk. If you're concerned about censorship, the last thing you want is a legal regime that is going to punish platforms for keeping things online, Mackey said. It's going to be increased censorship, more material will be taken down, and a lot won't make it alone in the first place. A decision from the Supreme Court is expected by the summer. Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook, is reportedly planning a fresh round of layoffs, but it's unknown how many people could be affected. The lack of clarity has resulted in staff noting that not much work is getting done, as managers have been unable to plan ahead. Certain budgets that would normally be finalized by the end of the year still haven't been finalized, and decisions that would usually take days to be signed off on are now taking a month in some cases. Meta is preparing a fresh round of job cuts, according to a report from the Financial Times. The report comes as Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg said earlier this month during an earnings call with analysts that the company plans to continue to contain costs. He promised a year of efficiency and said that Meta would be more proactive about cutting low-priority and low-performance roles. Zuckerberg noted that Meta would be flattening its organization structure and removing some layers in middle management to make decisions faster. In November, Meta laid off 11,000 employees, or about 13% of its global workforce. The cuts were the largest in Meta's history, and it impacted multiple departments within the company, with recruiting and business teams affected the most. At the time, the company said its hiring freeze would extend into early 2023, with only a small number of exceptions. 
Although Meta clearly isn't the only company to announce layoffs in the past year, it's one of the few to expand on its previous layoffs. For instance, Amazon originally said it would lay off 10,000 employees, but later expanded that figure to 18,000. In addition, Coinbase recently laid off 950 employees after already letting go of 1,100 employees last June. The news comes as Meta announced today that its chief business officer, Marnie Levine, is stepping down after 13 years at the company. During her time at Meta, Levine served as the first chief operating officer at Instagram and was also the vice president of global public policy at Facebook. Meta said that moving forward, Nicola Mendelssohn and Justin Osofsky will take on expanded roles as senior sales and partnership leaders and will report to COO Javier Olivan. This cable TV company is going streaming only and shutting down its traditional TV service. Cord cutting and streaming have been taking off recently, and inflation is driving many to look for cheaper ways to watch TV. It is also driving cable TV companies to look for ways to save money. Sparklight Cable, also known as Cable One, will be shutting down its traditional cable TV service. Instead, customers will need to use the new Sparklight TV service, a streaming-only service that needs a device like an Apple TV or Fire Stick to work. No Roku support is available at this time. Sparklight said in a statement on their website, We will be transitioning all Sparklight markets to Sparklight TV on a market-by-market basis, at which time we will no longer be offering traditional linear cable TV service, which requires a cable box. Existing cable TV customers will be contacted directly when Sparklight TV service is available for their home. Sparklight, as of the second quarter of 2022, had about 1.1 million residential and business customers across 24 states. In 2021, Sparklight stopped selling new traditional cable TV subscriptions, and now current customers are being moved over to streaming only. The main downside to Sparklight TV versus YouTube TV, for example, is it only works inside your home network. You can't take Sparklight TV with you on the road. Instead, you will need to use a second app called Sparklight's TV Everywhere app to access content outside of your home. Sparklight's condition is a precursor to what the other major cable providers will gravitate to as cord cutting has accelerated in which cable subscription has fallen dramatically 55% from its high levels. Scientists can now use Wi-Fi to see through people's walls. Researchers at Carnegie Mellon University can map human bodies through walls using Wi-Fi signals. The technology tracks key points on the body for detection, extending previous research into using Wi-Fi signals to locate humans. The study's authors positions the breakthrough as helpful to privacy, even if it opens the possibilities for much easier, cheaper human tracking. It isn't immediately clear how using only a Wi-Fi signal to track human movement through wars improves personal privacy. But that's what a new study from Carnegie Mellon University claims. In a recent published paper, the researchers expanded on the study of employing Wi-Fi signals to map human movement. 
especially in low-light situations that make using other technologies less than desirable. The study from Carnegie Mellon in a publication said, We develop a deep neural network that maps the phase and amplitude of Wi-Fi signals to UV coordinates within 24 human regions. The results of the study reveal that our model can estimate the dense poles of multiple subjects with comparable performance to image-based approaches by utilizing Wi-Fi signal as the only input. This pathway opens the option for low-cost, broadly accessible human tracking through wars. High-cost technology has successfully mapped people's movement through wars for years, as researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have spent over a decade working on ways to more easily see people through wars, whether using cell phone signals or Wi-Fi. In the Carnegie Mellon study, scientists had Wi-Fi signals send and receive a body's coordinates and then use dense poles to map the body. From the study was the following. Advances in computer vision and machine learning techniques have led to significant development in 2D and 3D human pose estimation from RGB cameras, LiDAR, and radar. However, human pose estimation from images is adversely affected by occlusion and lighting, which are common in many scenarios of interest. By reducing the need for the advanced and expensive technology, the Carnegie Mellon researchers say they can make human tracking more available. They've also positioned a breakthrough as a privacy-positive situation. FCC targets repeat robocall offender with new cease and desist. The FCC alleges the same owner started a new company with a different name to continue robocalls to evade regulators. As the U.S. Federal Communications Commission, that's the FCC, continues its crackdown against illegal robocalls, it issued a new cease and desist letter to a repeat robocaller for calls related to bank impersonation. The FCC said multiple investigations have found that One Eye Telecom is a successor entity to a company called PZ Illum Telecommunication, which was sent an FCC Enforcement Bureau cease and desist order on October the 21st in 2021 and subsequently shut down. Both companies share the same owner, Prince Anand, who allegedly said he started One Eye after the shutdown of PZ Illum Telecommunication and left his name off the paperwork, according to a statement from the FCC. Our investigators are not fooled by rebranding and figurehead ownership tricks. The FCC's Enforcement Bureau Chief, Loyan Igao, said in a statement, we are not going to allow serial robocallers to simply start up new companies to continue scamming American consumers. Repeat offenders will face stiffer penalties. The FCC ceased and desist letter to one eye said the agency has determined the company is a gateway provider for apparently transmitting illegal robocall traffic. The letter represents another step in the FCC's ongoing fight against robocall scams and spam, with the agency calling on voice providers to stop accepting traffic from one eye and other illegal robocallers. You know, there's one thing that the FCC hasn't even thought about. These scammers are using robocalls to benefit a company. Why can't we just go about to penalize the companies which are benefiting from the robocallers? 
so long as you have the companies providing the funding for the robocallers to operate, we will continue to get them in all sort of fashion. AMD's latest drivers are causing havoc on Windows PCs. AMD's latest Adrenaline 23.2.1 driver is apparently crashing Windows and causing serious boot issues. The driver contains updates for AMD's Radeon RX 7000 and 6000 graphics card families. It also added or improved support for the games Forspoken and Dead Space, as well as additional Vulkan extensions. However, its launch saw AMD users scrambling to log their frustrations across forums and social media. For instance, a Twitter user stated that the driver crashed my whole PC. Now I have to set up Windows again from scratch. Another user lamented that the driver bricked my Windows install. That's not the kind of nasty surprise you want when installing a driver. And right now, AMD has not responded to the complaints. On AMD's website, the driver's list of known issues mentions stuttering and crashes in a handful of games, but makes no mention of serious Windows issues like those reported on Twitter. The problem is made worse by the long delay AMD users have faced for this driver. It's been over two months since the last update, and the wait was so bad that two weeks ago, Frank Azor, AMD's chief architect of gaming solutions and marketing, had to take to Twitter to explain the situation. According to the Twitter account of PC monitoring tool CapFrameX, the driver could be changing Windows BIOS settings, which in turn might lead to crashes and boot problems users have been describing. If you're suffering similar problems after installing AMD's latest driver, try checking your BIOS setting before resorting to reinstalling Windows. Using Display Driver Uninstaller to roll back the driver could also help as well as the issues Windows users are experiencing with AMD's latest release, the driver also seemed to be wrecking havoc with Ayanio's portable gaming consoles as well. According to a post on the Ayanio website, internal testing has shown that the latest AMD driver limits the VRAM on the Ayanio 2 and Ayanio Geek to 512 megabytes. That's a fraction of the 3 gigabytes or 6 gigabytes these consoles can be outfitted with, and it could lead to negatively impacted performance. All in all, it seems hardly likely the driver launch AMD fans were expecting, especially after waiting so long. Here's hoping AMD can quickly roll out some fixes to put the problems right. Unless you're absolutely in need of the updated driver, it is strongly recommended you delay the update. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about the workplace, IT, and a lot of the different things that are happening around the world. As you may be aware, uh, there have been a number of different layoffs across uh, Google, Microsoft, uh, whoever, whoever, whoever. Throughout the tech sector, there have been layoffs. And some of these are pretty standard. Some of these are pretty much expected. 
Uh, there are companies that are realigning. They've had massive growth and they haven't had a chance to really sit down and go, okay, we do have some folks that are going to hold us back, that are going to keep us down. So uh, this is something that every company should go through on a regular basis. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing. But one of the things that goes along with all of these different layoffs is a lot of different exit packages. And these exit packages are things that that may include a lot of the, the basics. Okay, how much vacation payout are you getting? And that uh, depends on where you live, how much vacation pay you retain. Uh, your severance pay, your severance pay may be dictated by law. If you are part of a larger layoff, at least it must be at least X amount of dollars over X amount of time and stuff like that. And it, it all varies. And then there's going to be stuff like your your COBRA, your, your benefits, your, your health benefits and things like that. You also have to sign back things like, you know, do you have any uh, property? Do you have, uh, you know, any of the information in regards to unemployment? And then we get into three different areas that people struggle with and they don't know how to handle them. So I want to I want to throw this at you and I want you to think about this, especially when you realize that one part of all of this is. Your severance package, no matter what they tell you, it is not written in stone. There is some level of bargaining. You want a certain amount of money. They want a certain amount of things that you're going to sign off on. So when you start talking about things like a confidentiality agreement, okay, to what extent are we talking about? There are a lot of different things that I know about my former employers. And are you saying that you're not going to allow me to do this? You're not going to allow me to share information with a future employer. You're not going to allow me to share information with anybody. You're not going you're going to somehow try to enjoin me from being a whistleblower to the government. You know, there's all of these different layers in regards to confidentiality agreement. All right. So that already starts to set off some alarm bells for me. If somebody's going to try and hold me to that, how exactly do you mean this? And you need that in writing. You really need especially any of the exceptions in writing. This is all just part of what you need to do. And you may say, okay, I will, I will accept this. You're, you want to enjoin me from going and doing this. You want to enjoin me. You, you want to keep me from doing that. Okay, I'm going to need some more cash. But it may not just be cash. It may be uh, a, a, an additional bonus. It may be a matter of whatever else there is. You've got a lot of different things. Depending on what company you've worked for, you may have, uh, yes, your, your, your salary slash wage. You may have uh, items that are 401k and profit sharing and uh, stock options. And you may have taken out a loan, uh, whether through the business or through 401k. So there's a lot of different things like that. There may be some unreimbursed business expenses that they need to make good on. And you may say, okay, I I need you to reimburse me for X, Y, and Z 
as part of your business so that I can go on out and get a new job. And there's a lot of different areas, and it all depends on how you want to work this, how you want to pitch this to HR. The next item, so the confidentiality agreement, but then the next item is that general, uh, it's a release of claims. It's a it's an agreement that you're not going to sue them. And in some jurisdictions, that's not even legal. Some, it is legal. So you have to kind of weigh that out and you have to discuss, what do you think I'm going to sue you for? Now, if you have, if you have something that you feel you have a right to sue, you're going to do whatever you can to have them strike that. Or on the flip side, argue, you know what, I I think I've got a claim for, uh, you know, $100,000. Now, I've, I could take that to court, but what are you going to do for me? And you lay it out. What are you going to do for me? To, to have me sign that, uh, that agreement. Now, of course, most of the time, they're not going to offer you enough to have you just write off $100,000. If you've got some kind of legal claim like that and you're being laid off, you're being kicked to the curb, go find a lawyer. This last one is the one that I, I trip over the most. Every time I see one of these, whether it's it's signing up for a new company or it is leaving the old company, it is a non-compete clause. And this is kind of funny because, okay, you know enough so that if you were to go into competition with your old employer, that they are going to hurt. Well, apparently... They're not going to hurt that much because you're not important enough for them to retain, for you to stay on the books. Uh, that's what they're telling you. So which is it? Am I important enough to for you to keep keep me on the board? Or am I so unimportant that this non-compete clause can be removed? Of course, you can argue all of the specifics across all of these different severance agreements And I encourage you to do exactly that. Protect your rights. You really honestly are the most important person in this entire equation, in this entire agreement. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. A formidable new rival is set to challenge Intel and AMD. Following Amazon, Google is expected to launch a new server CPUs within years. Google is expected to launch its own new server chips in a move that could have a huge long-term impact on Intel, AMD, and other independent ARM-based chip manufacturers that rely on hyperscalers, which means the businesses that house cloud storage, web hosting, VPN, and even Netflix for revenue and growth. According to a report published by The Information, within the next few years, Google is aiming to launch a rival to Amazon's Graviton server processor that has proven to be a roaring success for the world's largest hyperscaler. Sources claim the company Google has not won but two server designs in place, running concurrently with Cypress, a fully custom design from Google Israel, Pitch as Plan A, and Maple, based on the design from Marvell Technology. The involvement of the latter is particularly interesting 
as Marvell stopped working on service CPUs in 2020 when it can its Cavium acquired Thunder X family, and one has to wonder whether Google's Plan B would be based on the now-canceled Thunder X4. Google has almost a decade's worth of experience with processors. Its latest, the G2, was announced in July of 2022, making its full debut in the company's flagship smartphones, the Pixel 7 and the Pixel 7 Pro. Before that, Google worked on so-called Tensor processing units, that's TPU, AI-specific accelerators that use ASICs, which means application-specific integrated circuits for neural network machine learning. So it seems that Google trying its hand at something bigger was just a matter of when rather than if. Designing one's own custom processor goes beyond mere cost savings as it allows Google's engineers to bake in proprietary technology that cannot be found in off-the-shelf products from Intel and AMD. Turning it to the extreme, something that can be achieved using ARM's platform will translate into faster time-to-market and energy saving. What now then for Epic and Xeon processors, which are chips for server workstations and embedded systems? Intel and AMD have known for more than a decade that this is the trajectory the industry was taking. After all, the world of high-performance computing is a small, incestuous one with many veterans swapping roles. For example, Google's VP of Engineering for Server Chip Design is Intel CPU design veteran Yuri Frank. Both Intel and AMD have made acquisitions over the years that should help them weather the ongoing paradigm shift. AMD acquired ATI back in 2006, followed by the $35 billion Z-Lynx purchase in 2020 and Pensado in 2022. Intel, on the other hand, in 2016, acquired Altera and has for nearly three decades dabbled into graphics processing units. The world of data centers is moving away from being x86-centric to one-way open platforms. We know that other hyperscalers, Tencent and Alibaba, for example, have aggressively expanded their processing units' plans, and recently, Apple may do the same to augment Siri capabilities with ChatGBT risk features. An S1 server chip based on the M1 architecture is not out of order. Facebook is also expected to have its own custom chips, and the last of the big global hyperscalers, Microsoft, is already well-versed in microprocessor design with the Microsoft SQ2 in the Surface Pro X. Remote workers and freelancers are cutting back on working from home because it's gotten expensive. Looking back, one of the most exciting prospects about working from home was the ability to live at large, have the heating on to the exact temperature you like, your favorite television show or music droning on in the background, and enjoy a midday shower after your run without the awkwardness of a communal office dressing room. But fast forward to today, and many of these little luxuries are too costly for the average remote worker. Not only that, not even the basics like heating is becoming unaffordable as the cost of living spirals. Remote workers and freelancers are so worried about the rising costs 
related to working from home that they're actually searching for alternative work locations to save money. According to a study of 1,000 remote workers by SkyConnect, 87% are concerned about the impact working from home is having on their energy bills. This was heightened last month when much of Europe and the United States experienced brutal blizzards and dangerously cold weather, with 78% of respondents describing working through such conditions as uncomfortable. Left with the option to work uncomfortably in a cold home or spend more than they can afford on heating, nearly half of those surveyed said that they felt forced to find an alternate working location. As such, they resorted to working in the likes of local cafe, pub, or library at least once a week. The main reason for not working from home was to saving money on heating their homes, according to the survey, followed by saving money on energy bills. The convenience of a local public space also meant that workers could avoid spending money on commuting or forking out for pricey co-working subscriptions like WeWork. Both of these costs concern around a third of respondents. The only downside, unreliable connectivity. For remote workers, obviously the ability to effectively do their job remotely is important. It's why 70% of respondents said they don't work outside of their home office more often. The cost of living crisis is a huge concern for consumers and small businesses alike. But for those spending the most time at home, increasing energy bills are understandably putting a strain on personal finances. This is the finding that was given by the Director of Sales and Operations at Sky Connect. While it's great to see these workers supporting their local small businesses during an increasingly challenging time for hospitality, it'll be important that a working environment is available that keeps these more regular customers coming back. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you know, we've been talking about uh, over the course of the last number of weeks, we uh, screwdrivers and uh, battery backups. Did you get into any computer stuff coming out well, of CES? Well, there was a trackball. There was, you're right, the, the, the trackball. That was, um, that was what, four weeks ago or something like that? Yeah, yeah okay. All right. So yeah. I, I should mention, you know, not everything comes at once. The keyboard we got. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm looking at a box from Turtle Beach and I'm thinking, cool, what are they sending me? Venerable <laughs> <laughs> yes. old brand and audio stuff. But yeah. this wasn't audio. This was Rocket, R-O-C-C-A-T. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I, I love their keyboards. Yeah, and that, that's what they sent, their Magma Mini keyboard. Now, it's not okay. your granddad's PC style full with, you know, one or whatever key layout. It's does in some ways feel like one and a good one at that. It's just the main QWERTY keyboard section with no numeric pad or curse and control set. Mm -hmm. But it makes up for that with a bonus shift mode that brings in new tasks for the keys you got. Okay. Uh, it's got RGB backlighting and that'll make you think that the digital tie-dye era is upon us. But <laughs> gee, do you think they may want gamers to pay attention? Uh, here's a more pointed list of the things you like. Yeah. It's only about 60% of the width of most okay. keyboards. All right. 
the keys are full size. It's the keys that aren't right. there. So it's yeah, it yeah, yeah. It's, it's reducing it down to like a laptop uh, keyboard without right. the n number pad and all that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it resists spills. Mm -hmm. It's more beverage compatible than many keyboards. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I've had that 50, problem. It's yeah. a fifty buck keyboard with the feel of a hundred buck and up model. Full travel keys, mm -hmm. fast mm -hmm. response, and a healthy twenty key rollover. So okay. All the right. Rock Cat Magma Mini is worth looking at. Uh, their their specs are always good. Uh, uh, I, I've I've been rather fond of theirs. I can remember you tap dancing on keyboards on the air. I thought that <laughs> your handling was brilliant. Oh yeah. Uh, now Monday night, uh, two nights ago, I installed something that I'd had in a box in the living room for a long time and hadn't quite had the nerve or the time to put in okay. a Brondell. 1400 series bidet. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Now this is interesting because this is something that I've, I've studied culture in other countries and, and I, I'm aware of the concept, but it's something that just isn't common here. No. Well, traditionally something's built as a standard toilet or it's built as a bidet. Right. But this is a retrofit. Mm -hmm. It it goes on top of a toilet. It, yeah, it okay. replaces right. the yeah, seat. Yeah, yeah. Now, I have to tell you, I spent a long time thinking about installing it before I installed it. Okay. So it starts with taking off the old toilet seat. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, then you have to turn off the water valve and flush the toilet so the tank is empty because you're going to be putting a T connector at the bottom of the tank. Okay, yeah. And that means when you open up the bottom of the tank, some of whatever water is in there is going to come out. And I got to tell you, it's about a quarter teaspoon. There wasn't much at all. Oh, good, good. Okay. Okay. Uh, the T connector lets you keep the thing that comes out of the wall and goes into a toilet tank, lets that toilet keep flushing. But it gives you a detour pipe that feeds the necessary water squirters within the bidet seat. Okay, yeah. So there there was some mechanical mounting of a plate. This thing slides into the plate. You have to add the water fixture that you've just set up. Mm. And uh, then there's a GFCI or GFI power outlet that you have to plug into for the electric part. Okay, all right. And four coin cells to put in the remote. 20 the minutes. Remote. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 20 minutes end to end for the install. That's all. Nice. Okay. So, so that's, the, you know, I've been looking at uh, some of the, uh, some of the similar units there. Uh, and I've been kind of concerned about the, about the install thing. I've been concerned about, do I really want ice cold water spraying? Oh, but it there. isn't. Yeah. This has a heated seat. It heats the water to your choice of three temperatures. You can okay. adjust the position of the wand. You can adjust the spray width. You can make it okay. oscillate right. back right. and forth. You can set the water pressure. There, there's just a lot of stuff. Oh, and a warm air dryer. You can set the temperature <laughs> nice. of that. Nice, nice, okay. It also has a separate wand. The, the wand that men and women both use is what they call the rear wand. If you're not male, then the front wand can help you too. Okay, understood. Yes. Okay. And then if you don't understand that, we're not here to educate you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, it's got all of these wonderful adjustments you can make. Once you set it in the remote, you can set yourself up as a user in its memory and uh, 
in terms so, of going for a drive on it, uh, you know, hey, Tesla, take notes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like if you sit down, you press the, the like your, your, like your, your car, your, your yeah. car settings. You just you yeah, press okay. number one and uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Very cool. This is this is something uh, I, I want to find out from you over the long term. I want to I want to revisit this at least in private conversation, if not here, uh, because uh, because I've only had opportunity uh, probably a couple of times uh, at Japanese businesses. I, I understand. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I go to home remodeling shows and all of that, and I oh, talk okay, to. Yeah. The yeah. toilet manufacturers who build these things in now. This is the first guy with a retrofit I, I, I've spoken with or had products from. And the guys I talked to say, well, it takes some getting used to, but then I wouldn't do it any other way ever. I want to <laughs> get to that point. I do want to get I'm not there yet. I want to get to that point. All right. As for now, that's Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. You're listening to Computer Talk Radio. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. TCF, which is the Trenton Computer Festival, is back again with an in-personal festival and streaming talks available online. Enjoy an exciting day of digital technology-related talks, workshops, exhibits, and vendor sales and demonstrations. There are 11 separate tracks, including a full day devoted to electric vehicle, that's EV technology. It all takes place on the College of New Jersey campus on Saturday, March the 18th. The theme this year is EVs. Our keynote speaker is Lee Goldberg, author of Green Electronics and a contributing editor of Electronics Design Magazine. The New Jersey Electric Vehicle Association has arranged for an EV car show with the opportunity to test drive EVs. The New Jersey Electric Vehicle Association is partnering with the Trenton Computer Festival by bringing dozens of different electric vehicle models on Saturday, March 18th, that's 2023, at the College of New Jersey. The New Jersey Electric Vehicle is one of about 100 chapters of the National EVA, a grassroots organization with a mission to accelerate the adoption of EVs by education and demonstration. They will also be joined by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, Bureau of Mobile Sources that will be offering rides and drives through local dealers. For more information on TCF and to register, please visit the following website, tcf-nj.org. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation, Current Trends in Personal Technology, Thursday, February the 23rd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. TechEd Connect, formerly Westchester PC Users Group, We'll have a presentation on stained glass windows. Thursday, March the 2nd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting Friday, March 3rd. 
Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a meeting Thursday, March the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, March the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is limac.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, March the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220, that's 220, Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And the phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live, on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.